So, today on Rising Up by Asia Startup Network, we have Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri. Azran has held several important executive positions in industries that are drastically different from one another throughout the years. We delve into all these interesting transitions and what he had learned from one of the biggest failures that he had faced throughout his career. This is an interesting one, I promise. I'm your host, Jayu. Check this out. Well, um, I consider myself an entrepreneur, not a manager. I consider myself a traveler, not a tourist. I consider myself an athlete not a fitness enthusiast. So I build business ventures. I'm not that good at kind of leading and scaling them. I, you know, I love getting into the, discovering the paths on, you know, that have not been gone through, kind of immersing myself and, and you know, engaging rather than just visiting. And, and I'm probably very driven as an athlete with very specific goals rather than just participating. Okay, sounds good. So looking at the vast experience that you have gathered, you know, throughout your career across different industries, we are curious whether the young Azra know, you know, whether he knew what he was getting into, you know, when he was at a young age. So maybe share a little bit more about how, how was it like growing up for you when you were young? Well, you know, I'm only 52, so I consider myself still young. And even after at 52, I still don't know where I'm going. It was the same, whether it was the five-year-old Azran or the 50-year-old Azran. But, you know, a little bit of context. You know, I grew up as, as you know, a pretty small kid in, in my little neighborhood community. I wasn't athletic and therefore not chosen on the football teams and left to fend for myself. What that meant, though, was that I quickly learned how to create my own games and rally the younger kids to join my crazy games rather than join the more conventional football games. And that spirit of saying, okay, well, if I don't fit in something conventional, I'll create space for myself, you know, and and that led me down that path till today. So it's not about kind of knowing that I wanted to do something, but just the willingness to chart my own path. Cool. And also, I think based on our previous conversation, we also briefly talk about how was it like when you were a teenager and apparently you move abroad from a familiar environment for further right. studies, which right. I don't think that was very uh, normal on a lot of people were doing that, you know, back in at the time when you were attending college. So tell us more about that. Sure, you bet. You know, so number one, I was primarily motivated to just leave Malaysia and see the world, right? So that was the traveler in me. And back then in the 1980s, if you wanted to apply for a scholarship to study overseas, you kind of were given four choices, right? Medicine, accounting, law, or engineering, these main professions. Medicine, I immediately ruled out because can't really stand the side of blood and these guys study for years and years. Accounting and law, I ruled out because those books don't have colored pictures, just dry text. And so engineering was the kind of least of the kind of unappealing topics. And it was my ticket to leave Malaysia. So I applied for it and I was lucky to, to get a scholarship to study overseas. And I immediately wanted to go to a place that had as few Malaysians and Southeast Asians as possible. I didn't want to go to the conventional places in the UK or Australia or in the East Coast of the US, but, you know, sort of place that was different. And, and that got me to 
Stanford in California where there were hardly any Malaysians and therefore I forced myself to immerse myself in, in this kind of situation. Now, being in that new situation, I also did want to find, uh, you know, where, where's the space for me? Where can I fit in? Now, back in high school, I played field hockey. So when you're not good for football, you, you know, the rest of us rejects played field hockey, but I love the sport. I love teamwork. And, and so when I went to California and I said, hey, where's the men's field hockey team? Like, field hockey? Only girls play field hockey. Men play ice hockey. Oh, wow. Well, that's a completely different sport. And, and as a you know tropical kid, I'm not going to play ice hockey. But I then said, well, okay, if I don't, you know, that's not my space. What else can I try? And I discovered through just meeting people a completely novel sport called ultimate or ultimate frisbee. And I'm the kind of guy that says, well, I don't want to just learn how to throw a frisbee. If I'm going to do this, what would it take for me to be one of the best ultimate frisbee players in the whole country in the US, right? From scratch. And that meant, you know, kind of learning how to throw a thousand times each day to get very good at it. And, and eventually I was selected to play competitively for the Stanford Ultimate Team, which became the number one seeded team by 1994, my senior year. Right. So that just kind of gives you an illustration of that kind of curiosity and adventure, willing to try something completely different, but not just try superficially, but if you can do something, see whether he can be the best at it. Yeah, that's interesting. I can totally see that competitive spirits, you know, even back then, you know, when you were young yeah. attending college, right? So, well, we heard that, you know, you were attending engineering school, but eventually, I, I guess, after graduation, you set up to do business and many businesses, in fact. So I guess, do you always know that you want to do business even though you went into engineering school? Well, so not at all, right? So again, as I said, <laughs> engineering was just the default option. And while my piece of paper says electrical engineering, I never practiced as an electrical engineer. In fact, within electrical engineering, I found a subfield called dynamic control systems, which was the least electrical engineering of all the electrical engineering subcomponents because that meant we had to work with aerospace engineers and mechanical engineers building physical things. And, you know, I helped with some of the kind of electric circuits, but I was more interested to meet and connect with other people. In fact, my whole Stanford experience was, how can I get a piece of paper that says engineering with the least number of engineering classes? I want to take as many psychology, sociology, economics, uh, you know, ballroom dancing, history classes, to gain as broad a perspective and, and meet as many different people as possible. And eventually when I finally had to leave because you know we ran out of ultimate Frisbee collegiate eligibility, one of my seniors on my ultimate team had joined management consulting. And so I was curious, hey, what does that do? Well, it's a job where you work for clients in different industries, you travel a lot and you do new projects every few months. That sounds really appealing for someone like me because I have a very short attention span and I love variety and I love trying new things. So again, I set myself to say, hey, that's what I wanted to do. And that meant apply for jobs in consulting and get rejected and rejected and rejected. I had a collection of 11 rejections from just about all the top consulting firms before, you know, number 12 decided, hey, uh, we like your tenacity and we'd like you to start as a consultant in Singapore in 1995. And that's how I started my professional career. And, you know, in, in my nine, 10 years of consulting, I got to work with clients in 
oil and gas in steel manufacturing plants in Indonesia, nuclear power plants in Korea, working for a Thai bank during the 1997 Asian financial crisis and so many, you know, colorful projects because I was just, I kept putting my hands up for all the crazy projects. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I, well, I wonder because, you know, throughout your career, you tried many different things and you said you like variety. So was there a guiding principle, you know, when you made key decisions uh, to, I don't know, transition or to move to another career? Virtually all of my transitions haven't been something that I specifically sought after, right? So for me, it's about number one, whatever work I'm doing, I get obsessed about it. I, I want to know as much as I can about it. And I want to talk to as many people as possible. So I'm a big believer in really building broad networks of people and people start to get to know you, right? And if they get to know you as someone who can deliver, they start to come to you and say, hey, we've got an interesting proposal. So for example, in 2001, I moved to Korea because there wasn't a lot of work here in Southeast Asia and, and there was a lot of restructuring work in Korea. But not I just didn't want to just go there for a few months on a project. I got myself so involved that I wanted to permanently transfer to Korea, right? So I'm here am I sitting in 2001 in the uh, managing partner's office of McKinsey saying, I want to permanently transfer and be part of the Korean team. And literally just as we're having that conversation, his phone rings saying, uh, McKinsey in Malaysia just won a mandate to serve the stock exchange to privatize it. And since Azran's the most senior Malaysian, can we have him back? I'm like, wow. Okay. You know, like I, I jumped in, I thought it would just be a short project. So I wanted to, uh, to go back to Korea. But I was so involved with the stock exchange and the chairman said, you know what, not only do I want you as an advisor, I want to hire you to implement all of these great plans that you've designed for us because no one else understands them. Until today, somewhere in storage in, in Korea, in Seoul, are my rice cooker, my stereo, my uh, toaster that I never went back to collect. And that's always led me down to these paths, right? That, you know, uh, all the different subsequent roles were because people heard about me and, and they sort of just came to me with um, opportunities. Yeah, I guess we would describe this encounter as serendipitous encounter. You know, some of the self-help books or whatnot, they talk about, oh, serendipity. And you want to engineer the serendipitous mm. encounter. I wonder mm. whether you have a formula for that. Yeah, so obviously it might seem like an oxymoron, right? Can you engineer serendipity? Well, well, by definition, no. But it's not necessarily about trying to engineer a specific opportunity. Again, I had no idea that from a stock exchange, I would join a satellite TV company and, you know, build TV channels in China and, and roll out satellite TV platforms in Indonesia and India. After that, I had no idea that I would start an airline, right? Um, so it's not necessarily about engineering that specific opportunity, but the two things are because of the people you meet, your willingness to go out and just say, who are the people who are really smart that I can learn from and have the thick skin to go to them and say, I'd love to get to know you. Number one. And number two, following through, right? When, uh, you know, when uh, people heard that, you know, I was in a very difficult situation, politically challenging to convince governments, stockbrokers, investment banks on this new privatization model for the stock exchange, even presenting to the finance minister, they heard like, oh, this is a guy who actually could take that plan and get it implemented, and the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange became a publicly listed company by itself. 
uh, and that led someone to say, can I introduce you to the CEO of the satellite TV company who also just went through an IPO and who's looking for someone to spearhead their international expansion? I have no experience in media and entertainment, but I went to see this guy, right? And from there, you know, for example, uh, at Astro, uh, one of my biggest projects or roles was to roll out Astro in Indonesia. So imagine in 10 months from signing a shareholders agreement to start a new venture in Indonesia, applying for a license, looking for an office space, hiring my first employee in a hotel lobby. 10 months later, we had 450 employees, a nationwide satellite uh, box distribution center and a functioning satellite broadcasting center. So it's that speed of execution, right? And over time, someone then said, hey, um, this guy, Tony Fernandez, wants to start an airline and looking for someone to build something, but he wants someone from outside the industry because he's frustrated with everyone in the airline industry thinking of one way. We heard about what you did in Indonesia. So, you know, when you, number one, you're, you're meeting a lot of people, but two, you have to be known for something that people want to also then come back to you and talk to you and talk about opportunities because they, they know you can deliver. Right. I think that's a super apt advice. Well, I guess, you know, based on these uh, few points that you have mentioned, mm. well, uh, following your curiosity, putting yourself out there, uh, be, being known for something have kind of shaped, you know, your career overall. And it seems like you've gotten everything right. So I wonder, was there any decision that you made that felt good initially? Because I mean, you know, all, all of these came kind of unexpected, but kind of somehow turned out, you know, mm. not quite what you expected after that. Well, I tell you, I, I've experienced way more failure than any successes, right? And, and sometimes we don't talk enough about that, right? So for example, um, AirAsia, like, you know, it was hard, right? Going from one single plane in 2007 and by 2013, it was a billion dollar IPO. Wow, amazing. Boom, just when you think you're at the top of the world, 2014 happens where there was not one, not two, but three black swan events, right? March that year, MH370, the plane that went missing, still missing today. July that year, MH17 that was shot down over Ukraine and December QZ8501 in, uh, in AirAsia, Indonesia, fatal plane crash. And although none of the three were directly under me, the impact or industry was brutal, right? Um, passenger traffic collapsed and, and our share price plummeted. I came guns blazing thinking, okay, here's a tough situation. This is what I wanted to do and presented the lo logical, bold, strategy to get out of that. But my board of directors disagreed and eventually I was forced out of the company. And it took me a couple of years of feeling angry, right? Like I had the perfect plan, right? It's the most logical and sensible thing. And, and since I left, the share price continued to fall. So clearly, you know, staying the course was not a good idea. They should have adopted my bold strategy. Until I calmed down a bit and, and one of my executive coaches said, could you have handled that situation differently? Hmm. What he made me realize that in life, it's not necessarily about whether who's right or who's wrong or who's got the right strategy, but your ability to connect with the people that are part of that decision. Do they see you as part of their team or do they see you as an adversary? We need to connect before we correct. And probably a lot of us have, would have experienced during COVID where we would have friends or family members who are reluctant 
to take a vaccine, right? Now, if you went to them and just say, hey, here's all the WHO research on vaccine efficacy and why it's good for you, are you going to convince them? Probably not. Because by trying to be that smart ass, you come across as someone who's telling them, you're stupid, I'm the smart one, here's all the logic. And people don't like that, right? They need to see that you're on the same team, that you listen and understand where they're coming from before they're willing to kind of adopt your point of view. If you don't have that connection first, you cannot correct someone. And, and since then, I've made many more mistakes, but I just want to center on that one in particular, right? Where, you know, life turns out to be quite different from where you think you're at. Right. Yeah, I think that's also something that I'm slowly learning about myself, you know, trying to be, it's, I guess for especially, you know, younger adults, they tend to have this tendency of, oh, I want to get everything right. This is what I studied in school. And I want to tell my boss that I, I can do it. I, you know, I mm. want to get things right. But oftentimes, sometimes it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't mm. work that well. No, when we just go ahead. Exactly, uh, right? And you want to raise money from investors. It's not where you, whether you've got the best business idea or the perfect business plan, but whether they can look you in the eye and say, do I trust you? It doesn't matter what their business plan says, but are you someone, it's not about what your business plan says, but do you have the humility to recognize when things go wrong and you're willing to change? Do you have the resilience to bounce back from? Do you have the curiosity to look at things from different angles? This is what matters more in life than saying, I've got the perfect plan or idea. Yeah, definitely. I guess another question that I would like to uh, have for you is that because, well, obviously, I think there was uh, tremendous stress, you know, when you were dealing with such, such situation before. But I guess, you know, like you said, there, there, there have been also other uh, encounters that are extremely stressful, especially when managing, you know, such a huge company, different transition here and there. So... Have you ever reached a stage of, I don't know, feeling burnout while dealing with all these uncertainties and workload? And if yes, like, how, how did you cope with it? And like, what did you do? Yeah. First of all, you know, burnout, depression, anxiety are really real, right? I've went through some very dark episodes myself. Step one, recognizing the signs, right? And they may mean suddenly feeling very physically fatigued, you know, soreness, especially in your neck, your lower back your sleep being disrupted, your appetite being off, you suddenly either not eat at all, you're just constantly craving for sugary or salty foods, uh, you become very moody and temperamental, or you become constantly having fever, sickness, and dizziness, right? And you can't engage with people. Now, if you've never experienced any of this, you are a robot, right? Most of us do go through that. The difference is whether you can bounce back after a day or two or three, but if it persists for more than a week, that's when someone needs help, right? So first, recognizing the signs and symptoms. And, and secondly, well, you know, we cannot avoid the bad things, the tough things that happen to us. We can't control what happens to us, but we get to decide how we respond to it, right? And that's why it's number one. If I am in that situation, how can I build myself back up? How do I get myself back up, right? And that means... Uh, I used something called the THINK model, H-I-N-K. T is for taking control. What are the things I can control? And what are things that are out of my control that I need to let go and not feel overwhelmed with, you know, things like whether investors will invest in me, right? Or whether my project will get accepted. I can't control that, but I can control how I present. I can control, you know, um, what I do. 
maintaining a hopeful outlook, H, right? Uh, you can always look at something as glass half full of glass half empty, and it's actually deliberate. And interestingly, the one factor that influences whether you look at things pessimistically or optimistically is who you hang around with. If your friends and family members and colleagues are all going, oh, no, impossible, impossible, all the naysayers, you start to adopt that mindset, right? But if you hang around people who are like, sure, let's find a way around that, your mindset changes. I is about informed actions. How do you respond intentionally rather than react impulsively, right? Reacting impulsively is always either I become defensive and I argue back, or I just think I'm completely worthless. Responding intentionally says, hmm, where's this other person coming from? What's the context? How do I, you know, how can I respond rather than just react? And then N is about nurturing ourselves, right? Taking care of ourselves so that we can handle that stress and especially who will be there to support us. And finally, K, knowing your goals. Whatever the circumstances are, what do you want out of the situation? So the thing model has helped me bounce back from these very tough situations. Yeah, I think great. Yeah, and I guess for our conversation, I think you mentioned about, uh, you mentioned that athlete, and I think I've seen some, um, you know, amazing, uh, so like, you know, on how you were navigating those uh, races, challenges, and a lot. I, I want to know a little bit more, like, what was your motivation uh, to train so hard, and, and what was your whole journey like? Well, so first of all, um, yes, I was a very competitive athlete, but my first 10 years uh, as a professional, I let myself... I was so focused on working, 80-hour work weeks, traveling, you know, having late-night room service dinners at 10 o'clock in the hotel room and then sleeping at 2 a.m., trying to get back to work by 8 a.m., I balloon, right? 16, 18 kilos heavier, five more inches in the waistline, uh, diabetic and, and high blood pressure. When I was in my early 30s, I probably looked, you know, 20 years older than I do now, right? So it is, how do you go from that state to where I am today. First part, it's no matter what you start, you're going to hit roadblocks, right? Like I try to lose weight, yo-yoing, it didn't go anywhere. But actually, it took about 18 months before change started to happen. If you've piled on 10 years of bad habits, it, three months of kind of quote unquote, a healthy disciplined lifestyle is not going to override 10 years of bad habits. But most people give up when they don't see results after three months, right? But for me, it was just kept being keeping at it until suddenly your body's used to a new equilibrium and it starts to adjust and the weight came off, right? Now, a big, another big part of that is the journey that you go through, right? Who do you spend time with? Because again, if you start spending time with people who are healthier, you it becomes more natural for you, right? You start to identify with that lifestyle. And, uh, you know, for example, when, when we got AirAsia X, uh, we were the first inaugural sponsor for the Borneo Marathon. And I thought, okay, let me rally my team and, you know, I'll sign up for the 10K run, right? Just to show that we can participate. And I was huffing and puffing, God, like, you know, 10K seems terrible. And when we finished, we had to wait for a few of our pilots who signed up for the full 42-kilometer marathon. And not only did I see them finish, I saw grandmothers and grandfathers finishing a race in four, five, six, seven hours, and they had the biggest smiles on their face. Wow. They just ran four times more than, than what I thought was crazy enough for me, and they were able to do it. 
So again, when you identify that others can do it, you're like, hey, I want to try that too. That eventually got down my path of running. And after like 12, 13, 14 marathons, you know, someone said, hey, you should try triathlons. Oh, that involves swimming, cycling, and running. Well, big problem. I never learned how to swim. But again, because when you throw something at me that says triathlon, other people can do it. Hmm. What would it take to start learning how to swim at 40 years old? Now, if you try to throw me into the sea, I'm going to panic. But if you define that starting point as the easiest first step, in my case, on my 40th birthday, I signed up for my very first swimming lesson with five-year-old kids in someone's backyard pool in the suburb in Kuala Lumpur. Lesson number one was put head in water, blow bubbles. That was all we did for one hour. And I wasn't even the best in my class, right? Those five-year-old kids beat me to it. Next week, lesson was the teacher would throw coins into the four-foot-deep pool and you had to go in and pick up the coins. And again, they bested me. All right. But it's if you can start there, eventually after six months, I thought, hey, I can swim a few laps. I'm going to sign up for my first sprint triathlon, the shortest swimming distance, only seven or 50 meters. And I'm normally, you know, I, part of the reason why I'm terrified of swimming in the sea and why I avoided the sea was because I grew up in the 1970s where we had not one, not two, but three Jaws movies. Right, these like scary movies of sharks. So I equated sea with sharks, right? So anytime you go into the sea, I'm always afraid that might be a shark lurking to grab me. So I figured, smart Azran, right? I'll sign up for my first triathlon in Putrajaya because it's a freshwater lake. No sharks, no currents, no big waves. Turns out swimming in a lake is so different from swimming in the pool because there's 700 people jumping in the lake at the same time with you crashing, splashing, kicking around, 50 meters in, I panicked, I hyperventilated, and I had to be rescued out. I failed. I hate to fail. Second time, went back to my swimming coach and said, we're going to do this again. And my next uh, race was a, a triathlon in Singapore off East Coast Park, right? And on Saturday during the practice, I was able to kind of swim the full 1.9 kilometer loop. I thought, hey, I can do this. Sunday morning during race, right? You're swimming out 300 meters. Those big oil tankers, they're like, they look so bigger and bigger. The water starts to get cold and cold. And then now everybody squeezes in for the first right-hand turn. And I get completely squashed under. I drank water, panicked, hyperventilated, and again, I had to be rescued up, failed again. I don't like to fail. So I found a former national swimmer who said, I want to learn what it takes to be a professional swimmer. So he goes, well, professional swimmers, you want to train with me? We do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five days a week at 6 a.m. while it's still dark because I need you to get, to get used to swimming in the dark. Right, And if you're not in the water at 6 a.m., if you're only by the poolside at 6 a.m., I'm going to call this whole thing off because he wanted to instill that discipline. So 1st of January 2013, while most people were still hungover from New Year's, I started my first professional swimming uh, training. And from there, on 8th of December 2013, I completed my first Ironman triathlon race, which involved a four-kilometer ocean swim in Australia where there are definitely 
great white sharks. Wow. Well, <laughs> this is so fun to, to hear, but like, well, like really, you know, you, you started learning how to swim at 40 and uh, all the way, well, I mean, you failed two times and eventually signed up for professional swimming class and well, and eventually you completed your race. I think, well, I, I love this. Uh, this is so amazing. <laughs> yeah, rush all the way. Just, and if you fall down, learn to get right, back up. Yeah. Right. I guess speaking of this, I would also like to touch on the, the startup that you're working on at this moment. So you're the founder of the health tech startup, Naluri. So can you tell us more about what inspired you to start this company mm -hmm. and what do you hope to achieve with it? So, um, I was before that my, my previous startup, iFlix, uh, that I was involved with some friends, it was like the Netflix for emerging markets, right? Uh, when we first started iFlix, a hundred investors rejected us because they said five guys in Kuala Lumpur, you guys don't stand a chance against this big giant company called Netflix. But by the time we met investor number 116 from the Philippines, he felt, oh, I think you guys are crazy enough to pull this off. Because as great as a product as Netflix is, 80% of people in Southeast Asia don't speak English, don't have credit cards for payment, don't have high-speed broadband, right? So there was a need for something for the mass market. And that's why iFlix scaled to 20 million users in 20 countries in just three years. And as I was doing that, I got to meet my former Ultimate Frisbee teammate at Stanford. He's now a co-founder of a company called Omada Health in San Francisco. So I got over to his office comparing notes and I was like, ah, so you use digital to get people addicted to healthy habits and specific for them dealing with diabetes. I'm using the same digital technology, except I'm getting people addicted to mindless TV entertainment. And when I kind of heard about the problem he was tackling, I felt very strongly about that same problem statement because I lost my father to diabetes. And uh, I realized the whole healthcare system was only focused on his physical health. Take this insulin, do this surgery, right? All of that. But no one kind of knew then what he was going through, the depression, the anxiety that can be so crippling. You skip your insulin, you miss your medication and your appointments, and things just got worse and worse and worse. So the healthcare system is broken because it's very siloed. So number one, what Omada inspired me, and again, because of the networks, right, you, you get ideas from other people and you realize, huh, when we first started, nobody, uh, iFlix, everybody wrote us off because there's this big giant called Netflix. Well, Omada is nowhere near as big in their space as, as uh, Netflix is. And we have the same problem with mental health and diabetes in Southeast Asia. And it's also the localization is so critical, right? Local language, local culture, how insurance gets paid. Um, and so I wanted to tackle that problem because I went through something very similar with um, iFlix and this one felt a lot more meaningful for me because of kind of what I learned from uh, my father's passing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm, I'm also glad to hear that you are working on something because of this inspiration. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, he's very proud of you. Well, I guess another question would be, well, you talk about focus a lot, I think, since the start yeah. of this year. And I mean, obviously, you are a very busy person and we are really glad to have you here. So how do you manage your attention and energy as a startup founder? 
like you know there's so many things to tackle and how do you allocate your energy and you know to focus on the things that you need to do well i think it is about being very deliberate specifically mm-hmm. how you use your time who you spend time with um and and you know things are hyper compartmentalized for me for example my number one software or productivity tool is my calendar google calendar why because i can select colors right and so i can arrange my time between when do i focus on internal issues when do i focus on kind of short term issues versus i need to block space to think about the longer term things so time blocking is hugely important so that i do one thing at a time and that's where focus comes in if you don't if you don't have a deliberate plan how you tackle your day you're just reacting right this thing comes into my inbox i'm dealing with that then i'm dealing with this then i'm dealing with that you become a lot more exhausted jumping from one point to another so first of all multitasking is a myth our brains cannot handle more than one thing at a time so when we're trying to have multiple screens multiple apps at the same time our attention span is constantly going back and forth and by that by that time end of day it's jumped 5000 times it's going to be completely exhausted and when you're exhausted you're not thinking straight next task it takes you 4 hours to do that you would have been able to complete in 1 hour if you had you know a clear head right so you know for me it's being you know very deliberate about what i choose to do and when i do it right Have have you always been like this? You know, managing your calendar in this way, or like what are the other stuff that you have tried but didn't quite work out in your case? Just curious. Wow, um, this has probably been about last ten years. I think maybe since I started, you know, taking on CEO roles and building businesses, where inevitably you're juggling a lot of things, right? From internal stuff, external stakeholders, short-term stuff, long-term stuff. uh and if you go back and forth between different categories you will get burnt out um i think uh, you know in terms of I, that that's probably a, a process of of kind of discovery going through situations where you're burnt out makes you think hmm i can't repeat that right like so you know in my 20s and 30s maybe i thought look you know what it's just about putting in the time right just hustle right working 80 90 hours a week because my body could Once you start getting into your 40s you realize you can't do what you used to do. So you got to act and think differently, right? It's not just about brute force uh and trying to get as much done as possible, but saying, "Hmm, my to-do list will never disappear. Every time I get 10 things done today, 15 to 20 new things appear. It'll just kind of grow." So the number one thing is learning what do I not do? what can i delegate what can i delay what can i just decline All right and that becomes crucial as a leader so that you're only doing the few things a day and you're doing it right and you get it done versus doing things 50% and then you're moving to something else and it's just not done yeah i think that's great uh, especially i think when you are leading a team leading an organization you are if eventually scaling people so where you yes. put your time where you put your attention it's definitely yes. very crucial 
Yeah, I guess next I would、mm. like to you know touch a little bit about the social impact activities、uh, that you have、mm. been involved because previously we were we were, we were glad to have you panel in Singapore you know、uh, on a talk with、uh, startup、mm. founders talking about mental health and all of that. And perhaps a, perhaps a question for you like how do you think entrepreneurs can make a positive impact on their communities and society as a whole? Like what are your thoughts on that?、Mm. Well, I'm a believer that the strength of an entrepreneur is Incredible focus and energy, which means picking one thing, picking one problem, and taking it from idea and concept implementation all the way to results, versus social or political workers who are trying to tackle the whole world or the whole country or the whole community, and you're trying to tackle too big of a problem. You're unfocused. You do a little bit here, a little bit of there, a little bit of there, and you're not really having an impact. Versus saying, for example, in our case, okay. We're not going to tackle all of health. We're going to tackle behavioral health, right? We're not going to tackle all of mental health. We're going to tackle depression, anxiety, and stress, because these are things where behaviors matter. And then, how do we go from the first person that we're helping, the first one hundred thousand person that we're helping, the first one million people that we're helping, and how do we get better and faster each time? So that focus and and that ability to execute, I think, is key. So most important thing as as entrepreneurs is. Are you picking the right problem? Is it something that you're willing to truly devote your mental energy towards? And who are you going to do it with? Because trying to do anything by ourselves is daunting. You'll probably burn yourself out, right? Who's going to pick you up when you're down, and who do you pick up when they're down, right? So doing it with a small group of people who share the same values and the same vision would be super key. Yeah, great, interesting. Well, I guess we are almost the end of our conversation. I just have a couple more lighthearted、mm-hmm. one for you. So, what do you enjoy doing, Stace? You know, if you're outside of work, what what do you enjoy doing? Well,、um, you know, I'm I'm planning my next triathlon race, looking at、uh, Melbourne in in November.、Um, but、mm-hmm. aside from that, I'm planning、uh, to climb a mountain in December with my two sons. That's amazing. Well, so the last part probably be you know about this podcast. So, so we definitely kind of name it as rising up, and we we'd also like to hear what our guests associate with this term rising up. So, Azran, what what are your thoughts? Well, to come back to what I said earlier, we cannot control what happens to us, but we can decide how we choose to respond. And knowing that life is tough. Life is unfair. Life is going to knock you down hard. You can't control that, but what you can decide is you getting back up, you rising up. That we can control. Right? Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Azan. I really enjoy our conversation and hearing your stories. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Rising Up by Asia Startup Network. If you stay till the end, please give Rising Up a follow on Spotify, YouTube, or whatever platform that you listen to this on. We、we'll、loved it, and thank you from the bottom of our heart for your kind gesture of paying this forward. You can also find Asia Startup Network on LinkedIn, where we regularly keep our community posted on anything exciting, relevant, and helpful to the Asia startup ecosystem. And we'll see you again very soon.